I want to invite you to open up to the book of Judges. And we are going to be picking it up in Judges chapter 10. And uh, see what the Lord has for us as we open up his word tonight. Judges chapter 10, we've, uh, we've just finished up uh, Gideon. You remember Gideon, he had a rough start, had a good middle, didn't end so well. His children uh, kind of went off the deep end with him. Uh, the end of their life, Abimelech, he comes along, kills all the sons, the 70 sons of of Gideon tries to rule as as king and we have all this chaos at the end and one of the important things that we grasp out of that as we look at the book of Judges and we understand every single one of these guys I don't care who it is could be us the thing that set these judges apart is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish whatever the task is that the Lord set before them And each of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been filled with that same spirit and are capable of doing the same, whatever God has, his plan, his call for us. But in that, we have to be diligent every bit as much in the victories as we need to be in the defeats. When life was hard, it was easy for Gideon to look to the Lord. When life was easy, it was easier for Gideon to lose his focus and to start to, to live for himself. Those, those final few years, the decisions he made, it didn't ruin his walk with the Lord. It just messed up his kids' walk. Some of the choices that he made. Well, as we come into chapter 10, we're going to be introduced to a couple of other uh, judges of which the scripture does not have as much to say maybe as we might think. Well, let's take a look. Judges chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. Just... Two verses. Sum up Tola. But as we look at Scripture, hopefully one of the things that that I can encourage everyone in is to realize that every single story, every single thing, every single part of Scripture that's there is there for a purpose and has more to tell you than you might think. There's more things going on. If we just read the words on the page, we're done with Tola, right? But if we want to know something about him, we can maybe glean a little bit more than that. Maybe we can pull a little bit more from what's going on in his life and how he maybe can be, for you and I, a picture of Christ. Tola was a defender. It says, in those days, Tola arose to defend Israel, to stand for them. And it's interesting because we do a study of Tola, we discover that Tola means worm. Isn't that interesting? How many of you guys, when you had your children, the first thought you had was worm? He's a little worm. The word for Tola also means scarlet. 
And it's interesting why that is, because the scarlet that they get for dyeing the scarlet in the ancient world, they got from a worm called tola. They crushed that worm, and it created the, the scarlet dye that they would use in, in clothing. The reason why I think that's interesting is because if we will consider the dictation uh, that Jesus gave from the cross that David wrote in the Psalms for us, in Psalm 22, there's an interesting phrase that, uh, that I believe the Lord speaks there. Let's take a look at Psalm 22 real quick. Psalm 22, you may, you may uh, remember the, the opening phrase of Psalm 22. It should s- sound familiar to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words that Jesus spoke from a cross. Most rabbis, when they're instructing their students, would throw out the beginning of a phrase or the beginning of a chapter. They'd begin it like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The student's responsibility was to go see what section of Scripture he's talking about. Now, most of the students at that time had memorized great portions of the Word of God. They would know. Oh, that's Psalm 22. But it's interesting when you read Psalm 22 in light of Christ's suffering on the cross. You remember what the people said when they saw Jesus on the cross? Oh, he trusted in God. Let God save him. Let him come down off of that cross. When we look at Psalm 22, which was written 800 years before crucifixion was invented, you have a description of the crucifixion of Christ. Let's read the first eight verses. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am Tola. Isn't that interesting? But I am a worm. Tola. Remember, Tola was the one who stood up to defend Israel. He left his home. He was from Issachar. He wasn't from the area where the trouble was. But he rose up, left his home to defend Israel. Does that sound like anybody else? His name means worm or scarlet. And here we have the dictation of the Christ, the Messiah... From his moment of suffering in Psalm 22, and he declares that I am a worm and no man. I am Tola, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip or stick out their tongue. They shake their head and say, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. As we go throughout that psalm, we see... Over and over again, the words of the people looking at the cross, up at the cross at Jesus Christ. And in a lot of ways, the very thoughts and the things that Jesus is going through on the cross, it details those things. Well, let's just talk briefly about the Tola. The Tola is an interesting little worm. This 
worm climbs up and pierces the bark of a tree, sticks itself through the sap to this tree, and prepares a waxy scale to protect its body. The dye is in that scale. As they are there, attached to the tree, they, the tree, they give birth to a larva. The larva hatch and feed on the body of the worm. This point on the tree where the larva attaches, when that larva gives its life, the young eat the larva and they are sustained. And what is left behind is a little red dot on a tree. Three days later, the little red dot turns white and flakes off the tree. Now when you think about that, when you consider that, and Jesus saying in Psalm 22, I am a worm and no man, who he himself, the Christ, attached himself to the tree. Did he not say, this is my body, broken for you, take, eat? And Isaiah, didn't Isaiah declare, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. You stand under that oak tree that's got all those worms on it. And when all those flakes are falling off the side of the tree, it looks like snow. It looks like snow falling. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Though your sins be tola. Same word. Same word for the judge, the defender of Israel. The one who became our advocate. The advocate for Israel. We see a picture of the advocate of the Christ. Listen, in 1 John chapter 2, this is what John writes. My little children, these things I write to you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. For he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of of the whole world. We look at Tola in Judges chapter 10, and we read this section of Scripture of this young man who was called Worm by his family, who became the defender of Israel, who gave him 23 years of peace, who was named after a worm that attaches itself to a tree, gives its body for its own young, leaves behind a, a scarlet dot that three days later turns white and flakes off, I suppose that's just coincidence, right? I mean, what do you think the odds are? What are the odds? Tola, Jesus in Psalm 22 saying, I am a worm and no man. So we see this first judge that we talk about, the worm who judged for 23 years as the defender of Israel. And that, that's all the word has to say about him. After him rose Yair, a Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. Now, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 towns, which are called Havath, Yair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. As we look at Jair, the second judge that the Scripture talks about, this is in the land northeast. This is not in the main part of Israel. 
Gilead is that section uh, where the Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stayed. Remember, they didn't cross over the Jordan. They said, this is as far as we want to go. That's where Jair rose up. That's where he raised up his sons. What did his sons do? When we look at the language that's used here, literally he has 30 sons who ride on 30 donkeys who keep peace in 30 cities. That what Jair did factored out into his children. That his 30 kids were like little deputies for him. That they were out doing uh, peace, bringing peace in the 30 cities that they were responsible over. And in the entire time that Jair judged, his kids followed in his footsteps. We keep that in mind because it was just a couple chapters earlier, remember, that Gideon decided to have 70 sons. And then he had one son who was from a woman who was a Canaanite. And we don't really know the story about the relationship, how that all occurred. But we definitely know 70, 70 sons had more than one wife working on that. And this one son who was brought into a relationship as a result of him marrying a Canaanite or pagan came up, rose up, and killed all the other boys. What do we see in Gideon's family? We don't see them following in Gideon's footsteps. We see compromise at the end of Gideon's life, choking off the fruitfulness of his family. But here in Jair, the Bible doesn't tell us the difference. All the Bible tells us is here's the thing that set Jair apart. He had 30 sons who had 30 donkeys. That means that, that Jair came from a wealthy family. They all had four-wheel drive. And, he, and they had 30 cities that they, that they governed, that they ruled over, that they brought peace to. And he ruled for 22 years. For 22 years, he, here was, he was a judge over that region, and he kept the peace. What's the point? Children don't have to rebel. They don't have to blow it. Nor do we have to, when we've made the choices we made and done the things we've done, and we see things going a little haywire in our, in our lives, especially with our kids, does it have to go that way? Because the same Holy Spirit that was in Jair is in you. Jair didn't have something special. He didn't have some unique uh, concept of raising children or guiding children. He just had the willingness to submit to the, the work of the Spirit in his life and to continue moving forward, and his kids followed him. So we want to not give ourselves excuses. Hey, we're where we are. Our kids are where they are. God's mercy is new every morning, right? So I can't do nothing about yesterday, but I can do something about today. I can't do nothing about the choices before that maybe caused grief, but I can do something about the choice I'm going to make now, the choice I'm going to make tomorrow, the example I'm going to be from this point forward. So the scripture lays out for us these two judges and the things that they were able to accomplish. But then it says, uh, Yair died and was buried in Camon and the children of Israel. Shocking, isn't it? The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The reason those two words are, are plural in your Bible is because 
they're by different names, but it's the same God. You guys understand what I mean? Baal's a God of the storm, the weather. They could call him 14 different names, but the Bible says it's just all the Baals. The Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility or sex or romance or love. It doesn't matter what you want to call her. The Bible calls her the Ashtoreths. All that kind of worship. This is where they went. Listen to who they worshipped. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. For they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. Now here's one of the things that really surprised God. What really surprised God is, you check and see in history, how many times a conquering nation comes in and conquers a people and then takes their God. That ever happened? When the Romans came in and, and uh, took power from the Greeks, they changed all them God's names, didn't they? Isn't it kind of confusing when you're doing Greek mythology and then every once in a while they throw in a Roman name like Jupiter? Who are we talking about again? Oh, that's Zeus. Same God, but they it's different names, right? Because the Roman names were, their gods were more powerful. When the Canaanites were obliterated by the Israelites, the Israelites took on the worship of the gods who were beaten, defeated. Does that make any sense to you? They took on the gods of those who were defeated. They took on the worship. Why? Well, it's, it's simple. We as people like to think we can do something to change our destiny, don't we? If we wake up in the morning and we come outside and there's a time of drought, God said, I send the drought when you're ignoring me, when you're not spending time with me, when you're headed down the wrong track, I'll send the drought. You look to me, get that right relationship with me, and I'll bring the rains. Now, we could say, well, I just need to draw near the Lord. I need to hear what God's saying. I need to press into Him. But, or, I could go worship Baal. So here's what I'll do. I'll say my prayer to God, and then I'll run down here to Baal, and I'll, and I'll throw a little uh, offering to Him, because who knows, maybe, maybe that will appease Him, and He'll bring the rain. And while you're down there giving your offering to Baal, you see all the priestesses or the priests of Ashtoreth, and you think, well, I want to I have a fertile life too. Maybe I, I kind of like what they're doing. looks like a good time. looks like fun. So you give yourself to that God. Pretty soon what you have is Almighty God or Yahweh, Jehovah. You have Him being a part of your life. And you don't have him being your life. And you are worshiping other gods. It's not any different today. If in your life you're giving God a peace, he's got this spot. He's got my Sundays. You got all my Sundays, Lord. Or you got my Wednesday nights. Or you got my whatever. And you niche out that peace. But then you look at your life and you think, well, this is kind of hard and that's kind of hard and, and there's some other issues, but I, I think I can solve all these problems by myself. So I'm just going to put all that good old American ingenuity into it and I'm going to work it out and I'm going to make things change and I'm going to make things happen. 
It's no different. Either God is your everything, your all in all, or he's not. If he's your all in all, you're in a right relationship with the Lord. If he's not, possibility arises that there are idols in your life. Well, I don't care what you call them. The Baals and the Ashereth is what God calls them. Baal was, was uh, financial success and Ashereth was uh, sex and power. That covers a lot of things in the good old U.S. of A., doesn't it? This is what led. This is what was going on. This is where their things were. So God delivered, but they're looking at all these other places. And I want you to hear what the Lord says. They forsook the Lord. Literally, that means they turned their back to Him and not their face. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. The Philistines went to the west, the Ammonites to the east. The Ammonites are going to be uh, uh, the people that we'll study first. The Philistines we'll see in chapter 13 when we get to Samson. So as we take a look, it says, From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And all the children of, of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So they're over there with Manasseh and Reuben and Gad. And the Ammonites are giving them grief. And they're in this place because they have added to their life the worship of all these other gods. They've, they've got all these other gods tied in. The Lord says, you're still bringing sacrifice to me. Why? Don't bring sacrifice to me and sacrifice to them. Jesus said it like this. Man, you cannot serve God and mammon. Right? You love one and hate the other. That's what Jesus said. His words, not mine. You love one and hate the other. If the Lord Jesus Christ is first in your life, you love him and you focus on him and you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And all those other things you're worried about, the Lord says they'll be added to you. But God's got to have that right place. So he sold them. God sold them. Listen, everywhere throughout Scripture, all the kings, all the different things that occur in their life, the Lord lays out for us that the people get the leaders they deserve. What does that mean about us today? People get the leadership they deserve. <laughs> I'd love to tell you it's going to get better, but I have read the end of the book. So the Lord goes on to say, Now, moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So they're causing a lot of distress, the Ammonites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baal. So they understood what was going on. And they cry out to the Lord. Listen to what God said in verse 11. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon? 
and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manites. They oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. But you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. That's God's response. Deliver us, Lord. God said no. Verse 14, go and cry to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. That's often a a test for us. Test, because we're quick to put our trust in a hundred different things, and when those hundred different things fail, then we call in the name of the Lord. Why? Every time somebody gets sick. And they go to the hospital and they get treated. We might not think about it at all. But when they go to the hospital and get treated and the doctor says, there's nothing I can do for you, or the doctor says cancer, or the doctor says some other thing is going on, now we'll turn away from science and medicine and some will shake a fist at God. Why? Why have you allowed this? And others will call upon the name of God for deliverance. I wonder how many times the Lord's response to us would be, well, you have taken all these other gods. You serve the almighty dollar. Let the dollar save you. You serve all these other things in your life. Cry out to them. Why are you only crying out to me now? So the Lord's answer to them, no, call on other gods, ask them to save you. But I want you to hear how the children of Israel respond. Listen to this. It is so cool and it's exactly the way we need to respond to the Lord. Listen, the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. First step, no excuse, no whining, my mommy didn't love me enough. My daddy beat me too much. What did they say? We have sinned. First step, confession. Confession. They acknowledged what the Lord said was true. Didn't make any excuses for it whatsoever. They said, we have sinned. You're right, Lord. Your charge against me is correct. I'm a sinner. Period. Period. First step to having God move in the lives of the children of Israel when they were wrapped up in idolatry was confession. The second step is submission. Listen to what they say next. The second thing that they say is, do to us whatever seems best to you. So first they confess, you're right. We've sinned. Second thing, they submitted themselves wholly to God. You do whatever you need to do. If this is what needs to happen, Lord, so be it. So be it. I place myself in submission to your will. They say then, only deliver us this day we pray. The third step is in verse 16. The third step is the fruit of of confession and submission. The fruit of confession and submission is repentance. 
their life changed. The first two steps are kind of easy. I mean, if you get right down to it, I can say those words, can I? You're right, Lord, I sinned. Come on. Every time we've had a fight with our spouse, sometime during that fight in our relationships, we have said, okay, 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 I'm wrong. You're right, I'm wrong. You've all done it. <laughs> I will reserve I will reserve judgment. <laughs> the, the point is, hey, that's what's going on with them. You can just say the words, I sin. You can just say the words, Lord, do whatever you need to do in my life. The words are cheap. The action comes in the beginning of verse 16. What did it say? Beginning of verse 16, it says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They put away, that phrase, put away, doesn't mean they put it in a drawer to get out later. That word put away means they destroyed them. They destroyed them. Must have happened a few times in my ministry. Somebody struggling with, with drugs has come and said, Oh, you know, I really feel like the Lord's telling me that I, that I need to get done with this. But you know, I, uh, I've got uh, a couple of bongs in the house. Well, brother, get rid of them. Well, I called some friends. I'm going to see if I can find somebody to sell them to. No, brother. Don't pin that stuff off on somebody else. Get rid of it. Burn it. Trash it. Break it. Oh, it cost me a hundred bucks. Who cares? You can only serve God or mammon. Which one's it going to be? You going to serve the hundred bucks it costs? There was a time for Kathy and I that we very distinctly felt God call us to get rid of some of the stuff we had kept for a thousand years around the house. Some things that we still use, some things we still listen to, some things we still watched. And we did not go have a giant yard sale and sell it all. You know, 10 CDs for a dollar. Didn't do it. When God told me get rid of it, and I'm not laying a trip on nobody else, I'm just telling you what God told me. It was gone. Poof. Gone. The fruit of confession and submission means something in your life changes. Something in the lives of the children of Israel changed. They destroyed their idols, part one. Part two, they served God. They destroyed their idols and they began serving God. How can we serve God? How did they serve God? What did they do to, to be in the service of God? What did they do to, to commit parts of their life to God? You wouldn't believe how many people will say, well, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday, but I don't want to get involved in anything. Well, don't fool yourself and start lying and saying that you're serving God. Don't tell me I'm serving God because I come to church on Sunday morning. That's not service. That's receiving that's looking for what I can get. Or how many times I've heard someone say, you know, I come, but I just didn't get nothing out of that message. Well, good. I wasn't in the business of you coming and taking. I was hoping you were coming to give. And I'm not asking for money. I'm saying, what are you doing to serve God? What are you doing to serve Him? 
You want to know whether or not you serve God, they always say the best place to look is in your checkbook and on your calendar, where you spend your time. Hey, we all got jobs and things that we have to do to live. And you can do those things for the glory of God or you can do those things for the glory of yourself. And there's lots of ways that you can serve. Lots of opportunity to help. And it's not all just coming through these doors. There's lots of stuff you can do for the Lord out there, isn't there? Sure there is. The two things that set apart that the words out of their mouth were real was their, they changed the direction, they got rid of their idols, and they started to serve God. Now, we can, on a Sunday morning, have an altar call and have 300 people come forward and stand around this altar and pray the, the prayer of salvation. How do we know the difference between words and real? Yeah. Time will tell, right? Does that mean that it's the works that saved them? Absolutely not. The Bible makes that clear. We're saved by grace. It is not of yourselves, Paul wrote in Ephesians. You didn't do nothing. But how do I know the, the concept, the thought, the belief, the faith in my life is real? Because it will drive me, as James says, to action. It will drive me to bear fruit. James said it best. Faith alone without works is dead. Paul said, you try to show me that you're saved by your works. He says, that's pointless. You can't show me by your works. You have to show me your faith is real. And when that faith is real, just like what happened with these people. Now, God had already told them, I'm not helping you. You're stuck. Pray to the other gods. It's not like God was promising them if you do good. No. They said, you're right, God. We're sinners. We're wrong. And they repented, they changed their life, they changed their direction, and what happened? God saved them. God saved them. The very next verse tells us, then the, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. They, they by the fruit of the faith that they had in God, God relented. And he's going to send a hero, a deliverer, someone to set them free. That's how God worked in the time of the judges, right? How's that different in our life? We cried out to the Lord, dirty, filthy lepers, right? Who did he send for us? A hero, Jesus Christ, who bore my debt and gave me his righteousness. And if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I am saved. And if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, my faith will have working clothes. It won't just do nothing. Its life will change. It will be radically different. So, it says, Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together, assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. Now listen to this verse. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man 
who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon. So they felt God move. They felt as they repented, as they confessed their sin, as they called on the name of the Lord, and God said, I'm not going to help you. And they said, well, Lord, you do whatever's right. We're your right, we're sinners. And their lives changed, and they burned their idols, and they turned to follow the Lord and serve Him. And the people gathered together against the Ammonites. They felt that move of the Spirit among the people. And the leaders of all those people began to look around and say, Who's the man? Who's the man that's going to lead us? Who's the man that's going to deliver us? Who's the man that's going to set us free? And the chapter closes. And chapter 11 begins with a little history lesson of a man named Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. I wonder how many times God chooses the outcast to deliver his people. I wonder how many times he tries to provide that picture for us that we would realize that that outcast and us are not that much different. At this time, God considered Israel his wife. Every time they followed another God, he accused them of adultery. In fact, so much so that he's going to call a prophet Hosea and he's going to tell Hosea to marry a prostitute and live out a, a practice uh, 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 for the people to see the way she treats him as the way Israel treats God. Jephthah was a boy of a harlot. Do you hear what it said before that though? He was a mighty man of valor. But the same people, the verse earlier, who are saying, who's going to lead us? They all got together and threw Jephthah out of town. They all said, you're the son of a harlot. Man, get out of here. Get out of here. Your mom's worthless. Your dad's worthless. Everything's worthless about you. All his brothers, his his." Half-brothers are like, get out of here. You're not of any use to us. Anybody ever felt like that before? I'm not of any use to anyone. Scripture says in verse 2, Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. They didn't value him. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. Tob was about 80 miles away, and it was officially the school of hard knocks. Tob was a place where the rough people lived. Nobody moved to Tob. The only reason you went to Tob was because you had nowhere else to go. Nobody else would let you come. So here Jephthah, he's going to go, he's going to move to Tob, Tob, this, this rough place on the outskirts. And what's it say in the next part of verse 3? And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Does that sound familiar? 
ought to sound familiar. There's this other character in the scripture. He was the runt of the family. Apparently he had very little value to his father because when the prophet came to visit the family, his dad didn't call for his son. He left him in the field. When the prophet came and visited the family, he looked at all the sons because he was going to choose a king. And he went through all the sons and God told him no on every single one of them. And so he said to Jesse, man, something's up because God's not choosing any of these your sons. Do you have any more children? Oh yeah, I got one more, but he's just a crazy, ruddy, he's better off with the sheep. He don't even hardly come home no more. He runs around with this sling and a stone and he's always saying he killed the bear, he killed the lion, he's protecting the sheep and he writes all these songs and he's always crying all the time and, and a, I, just, I just can't hardly relate to him at all. Well, Jesse, go get your son. So they went and got him and they brought him back. And when he stood there, this ruddy, good-looking boy from out in the field who hadn't had a shower in months, stands there before the prophet, the most important guy in all of Israel, the final judge. His name's Samuel. And Samuel looks up at the Lord, and the Lord says, This is the one. This is one who's going to be after my own heart. So... Samuel walked over to him and dumped this thing of oil all over his head. And it run down his face and his back and his beard. It's a mess. Picture it like that whole bottle of olive oil that you have at home. When the Bible says they anointed him with oil, it's not like we do it when we pray over here where we touch a little bit of oil and, and smear it on you. They dumped it on your head. Glug, 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 glug. That's how it come running down his head. And he said, you are now. That was a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming upon a person, getting all over them, affecting them, affecting the people outside of them, all those things. And so the oil was uh, attached to him. And the next thing you know, this little kid, he's going to go take lunch to his brothers who are out in the field, right? He's not king. God just told him, you're going to be king. Saul's king. But nowhere in Scripture does it ever tell us that David wanted to be king so bad that he tried to get himself in there. So he goes to visit his brother. He's taking him a little bit of lunch. He's just a little teenager. He runs in. Here's this big old ugly fat guy up on a hill yelling all these curses down on the children of Israel and the children of Israel hiding from him. David goes out with a, a, a shoestring and a stone. And he whoops him. And I, I love that Goliath says, what am I, a dog that you send out this child? I'm going to feed his body to the crows. And David looks up at him and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you to the crows. Well, my God is so much bigger than you. We're going to rout you right now. One stone, right? David wasn't king yet, was he? No, not king. Then Saul loves him and he falls. He, he has a relationship with, with Jonathan. They become best friends. And then Saul throws a spear at him. And he, but, but David had married Saul's oldest daughter. He was part of the family now. But David's not king. Then Saul throws a spear at him. Then David runs out and he has to live in the caves in En Gedi. The caves in En Gedi. So that sounds... Kind of cool. Let me tell you what that looks like. It's this 
kind of real neat, the foresty place filled with goats. That's what, it's what En Gedi means, the goat. And there's goats everywhere. Goats standing on top of trees. It's the wildest thing you ever saw. But just so you know, the caves of En Gedi are in the side of cliffs about 50 feet or more off of the, up the side. Not like there's no path walking up to them. Not easy life. There's water. You know what the Bible says when he went to En Gedi? And he lived in the caves. Worthless men came to him. That, you know what those worthless men became? The mighty men of David. You know what the worthless men of Jephthah became? The very ones who would deliver Israel by the power of God. He's thrown out, cast out, exiled. Just like the leper. Thrown out, cast out, exiled. God says, if I have 99 sheep and one's missing, what's he going to do? He's going to go find the one. He's going to bring them back. God cares about the outcasts. When Jesus was here on earth, the outcast women, the, the prostitutes, did, would Jesus turn his nose on them and say, I'm not talking to you, you're unclean, get away from me? No, they were always mad at Jesus because he's talking to the tax collectors and he's talking to the prostitutes and he's reaching out to these people who are sinners and they're dirty and they're messed up. Jesus said, I have come to the sick. That doesn't mean that the well are okay, by the way. If anybody knew anything, they would know we are all sick. But I can't help a man who doesn't think he's sick. So he came to the sick. Jephthah goes out in the outskirts. He goes to the land of the ruffians. And there, the Bible says, worthless men banded together with him. Other outcasts, other people that were cast away, they all came to him. Why? Because he was a mighty man of valor. He just happened to be the son of a prostitute. Scripture says, And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel. Listen to this. That the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. So you remember that verse. Now we're caught back up. Remember that verse that said, who's the man who's going to lead us? Now they're feeling the movement of God saying that God's going to deliver. They've made their confession. They've, they've made their submission. They've seen that real repentance in their life. And God really knows that they're serious about what they're saying. And then God says, go to Tob and, and get Jephthah. Get who? Go get Jephthah. You know, the... The son of the prostitute you guys threw out of town? How humbling must that have been for the leaders of Gilead? Uh, Lord, you know we, we just threw him out. Yeah, go get him. That's who I'm going to use. That's the guy God says I'm calling. That's the guy I'm going to move in his life. So you need to go get him. So they, they go to Tob. And they, and they go to get Jephthah. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Now look at, look at Jephthah's answer. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now think. Isn't that 
a picture of the same relationship they just had with God? Hadn't they just cast him out? Hadn't they just said, you are of no value? We like these other gods. We like the practice of worshiping them. We like the way we feel when we go to the parties that these people have. Or we like the way that, that, that the, the rain comes when we drop our offering out to Baal. So they cast God out. And when they came to God to ask Him for help, what was the first thing the Lord said? Go ask them other gods. Why are you bothering me? But when God saw the change of heart in the people, He said, I... I have someone to call for you. And so the one that God calls, Jephthah. It's a parallel that we see in Jephthah and the way he was cast out. Is that the first time we read that in the Bible? Where a judge, a deliverer of God is rejected the first time? Oh, let's think about it for a minute. We got uh, Moses. You remember Moses? He, he's raised up and, and, and he goes out and he tries to deliver the children of Israel by his own power, and he kills that Egyptian guard. And then he sees two Hebrew brothers fighting, and he goes to deliver them. Did they say, oh yeah, we want you to deliver us? What did they say to him? What, are you going to kill us like that Egyptian? And so Moses ran away. I'm out of here. Later. Forty years later, God empowered him, and he came back. The second time he came to the people, they received him as their deliverer. Well, what about that guy, Joseph? You know, one of the 12 boys? You remember Joseph had a dream that one day everybody was going to bow down to him, and they all thought, what a jerk. Why would you even think such a thing could ever happen? His brothers hated him because he, he cared more about the father than he cared about them. You ever catch that part of that story? Joseph cared more about his father than all the other brothers. He cared about how things looked to dad. They all called him a tattletale. I was always telling dad all the stuff we're stealing. All the bad things we're doing. Yeah, because he cares about how that looks to the father. Cares about that. Well, they cast him out when he said that he would be there delivering. and they would bow to him. They said, oh, no, we're not going to have you rule over us. And they sell him into slavery and off he goes. And they're pretty sure they're never going to see him again, aren't they? And the story fast forwards years and years and years. Joseph is going to go into slavery and into prison for more than 13 years. That's a long time. Then all of a sudden a famine comes and they hear there's some guy in Egypt that's got it all together. And there's food there. And so they go to get that food. The first time Joseph appeared to them as their deliverer, they rejected him. Well, second time, they all bowed, just like he saw in a dream. Jesus Christ came, the ultimate deliverer, the Mashiach Nagid, the promised Messiah, the King. And the people shouted when Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The people said, We have no king but Caesar. In case you were wondering, at the moment in which Christ was rejected, that's it. Who is the king of Israel? God. And what did they say? We don't have a king. Caesar's our king. They reject. They reject him. 
the first time. The second time, the Bible tells us, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. All of Israel will put their trust in the Messiah whom they pierced. Scripture says they will look upon him whom they pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only son. And Japheth is just another example of that. When he was a mighty man of valor living in their home, he didn't have the, the quality, you know, his mom's a whore. So get out of here. You're of no use to us. First time they cast him out. Now they're knocking at the door. Jephthah, will you deliver us? Jephthah, will you help us out? Well, what's the scripture go on to tell us about? So the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah in verse 8, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So now they're saying, hey, you, you'll be in charge of everything. Jephthah, you'll, you, you'll run all this area. Now, we're not talking about all of Israel. We're talking about Gilead, east of the Jordan River. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Now, I don't want you to miss this in this verse. Jephthah didn't say, if you take me on and I whoop these guys. What did he say? If you take me on and the Lord delivers them. You see, Jephthah understood who gives victory, who raises up kings, who establishes people. Jephthah understood. It's God who does it. It's God who made him a mighty man of valor. It's God who does that work. It's God in whom I trust. So he says, listen, if I do this and the Lord delivers them to me, he's not trusting in his own power, his own might, the guys that he has with him. And they've been raiding around the area. I'm sure they've been whooping on Ammonites all the while. But Jephthah's not filled with pride or some sense that that this is his big payback opportunity because these guys did him wrong. He knows where's the victory going to come from. The victory is going to come from the Lord. The Lord is going to give the victory. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. The mitzpah. Mitzpah. That means fortress. But you know that's that little necklace that you can get in Israel and it says the Lord do so to, to, to if you and I, you know, the one that all these people have each half on. You guys haven't seen those? They, they wear it because they think it's so sweet because the Lord do so to me and, and more if, if I'm not. The idea is if you do me wrong after you've made a promise to me, God's going to get you. But lovers wear it because, oh, I'm apart from you now and this is the mitzvah. Well, that's not what it meant. It meant if you don't keep your promise to me, you're getting whooped. But it got that name because it happens in Mizpah. That's where, remember Jacob and Laban, they were in Mizpah. And, and Jacob said, Laban said, you stole some of my idols, you know. And he didn't know one of his wives had taken the idols. And, and so he says, oh, and they make this deal in Mizpah. You go your way, I'll go my way. We don't cross each other anymore. And if you do me wrong, God's going to get you. Mizpah. That's what they do here. 
That's the promise they make. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people came and made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the, uh, of the people of Ammon, saying, What have you against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? Now here's what happens. They make Jephthah uh, the guy who's going to lead them, and he gets the army gathered up, and he goes out and starts fighting right away, right? No. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 20 said, Before you could go to war, negotiations had to fail. How did Jephthah know that? Well, Jephthah must have been a student of the word, right? He must have understood Deuteronomy chapter 20 because that's what he does. He comes back. He doesn't go to war. He sends out delegates and he begins the negotiations. And he's going to provide for them uh, in the beginning an argument from history. Let's talk about the history of the land. And so it goes on. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. By the way, that's the same argument that the Palestinians make today. Except the Palestinians never had the land. But it doesn't matter. That's their argument anyway. You took our land away. No, that's not true. But that's their claim. That's the claim that they make. Any more than it's true when these guys said it. The first argument are the facts of history. So Jephthah sent the messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, and he said, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not let them. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. And they came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. So we didn't go through the land. We didn't come into your place. We went around Moab. We went around uh, uh, Ammon. Uh, and then <clears throat> Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. King of Heshbon and Israel said, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and encamped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the land of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So he gives them a history lesson. We didn't take nothing from you guys. You're the Ammonites. We didn't, we didn't fight you. We fought the Amorites. They were in this land. And they came out against us in battle. And we beat them and took the land. And that's how the land left. Well, the Ammonites are saying, no, that's... That's our land. No, it wasn't their land. It never was their land. But that's the claim that their land. So he lays out the, the facts of history for them. And then he goes on in verse 23 and goes beyond that. Not only does history tell you how we came to the land, but ultimately the land belongs to the Lord. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites... 
from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess, possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. He says, hey, it's God's land. If your God gave you land, you would say you would go take it. Our God gave us this land. This is a land that our God gave us. It's his land. He put out the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites. And he gave us this land. So he says, listen, not only does history tell you how we came across this land in battle, but also this land was given to us from the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 25. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strike against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? No. Balak tried to hire Balaam. And he tried to get the, the children of Israel in trouble through sin. But he didn't go to battle. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, and in Arior and its villages, and all the cities between the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? So the third argument that he gives is we've been here for three hundred years and now you're saying that this is your land we didn't take it from you god gave it to us and we've been here for 300 years and now you're complaining and then he goes on in verse 27 therefore i have not sinned against you but you have wronged me by fighting against me may the lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of israel and the people of ammon However, the king of the people of Ammon would not heed the words that Jephthah sent. So the fourth argument that he gives is, hey, you guys are fighting against God. God be the judge between me and you. But I'm telling you, here's the history. This is how we got the land. Not only that, the Lord gave us this land. Not only that, we've been here for 300 years and you guys were all okay with that now all of a sudden it's a problem. And the fourth thing, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah. What I love about Jephthah as he begins and as he enters into his time as judge, and next time we'll see the battle and all the, all the things that Jephthah does as a result of that. What I like about Jephthah, he knew the word of God. He knew what God's word required of him. He knew the, the history of the nation of Israel. Now this is a guy whom his own people had thrown out. But he knew the word. He knew the history. He knew what God required. He knew who gave the victory. The way the people of God treated him did not affect his relationship with God. He still had a relationship with him. Anybody ever been wronged by people of God? But you know what? Jephthah didn't let that ruin his relationship with God. He understood that people are knuckleheads. Does anybody not know that people are knuckleheads? Do we not know that, that people say dumb things, that they make bad choices, that they, 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 they find themselves down a path they should not be down? Should that have anything to do with your relationship with God? Your relationship with God is the most important relationship you have in your life. When I was 17 years old, 
my relationship with God was at least what I consider to be pretty strong. I grew up in the church all my life. But about that time, my dad, who was a pastor, decided that he was leaving the ministry. He couldn't stand my mother for another day. And he was going to run off with this other woman that he had been counseling with who was in uh, um, one of the churches that that he was serving at. So he's going to run off with her and he left. And I was so mad at God that for the next 13 years, I did every opposite choice I could do that if it said, if, it, if there was a sign that said, God says go right, I went left. If it said, God says it's black, I said it's white. For 13 years, I was mad at God because God's people are knuckleheads. And for 13 years, I botched the most important relationship in my life. And I didn't treasure it. And I didn't learn the lesson that Japha teaches us. That even though the people of God treat you poorly, even though the people of God reject you, even though the people of God let you down. The most important relationship you'll ever have is with Him. That's what Japheth teaches us. And He's not done teaching us. He's got another sacrifice coming that He's going to fulfill. Because the most important relationship to Him was the one with the Lord. That's important for us to grasp as that leader during that time when God's people were having a hard time making him number one. God raised up a judge that even though God's people had mistreated, he still trusted the Lord, he still knew the word, and he was still willing to serve. That's a pretty awesome hero. And the best thing about that story is Every single one of us in this room has the ability to be just like him. Same spirit, same call, same victory. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. God, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that that we would just desire to pull from your word to say, God, what is it about Tola that you want me to understand? What is it about Jair? What is it about Jephthah? Lord, I I just don't want to read words on a page and rush my way through. God, I want to know. I want to to develop this relationship with you. That it be real. God, I just pray in this time, Lord, that, that that's what we would desire. To be real. Not to pretend that nobody ever gets hurt. Not to pretend that bad things don't happen. They do happen. The Bible says that the rain falls on the evil and the just. But God, you're the only one that can make sense of it all. You're the only one who can redeem it all. You're the only one that can bring that restoration. You're the only one who could whisper to me after 13 years of rebellion. 
Jackie, if you come back to me, I'll give you back the years the locusts ate. In the time of disobedience, the locusts come. And they eat it all. They eat all your money. They eat all your food. They eat all your stuff. The locusts, they just come and take it all. They eat all your time. And one day you stop and you look back and you say, I want that back. I want to do that again. Nobody gives you the chance. But God says this. If you return to me, I'll give you back the years the locusts ate. If you return to me, I will redeem the time. I'll make those 13 years count. I thank God that he does that. I thank God that he will do that for you. That he has done that for me. And I pray to learn the lesson of Jephthah. It doesn't matter how people treat me or if they let me down. The most important relationship I have is with my Lord and Savior. So God, I pray you would help us. If we're in a place, Lord Jesus, that, that we have been neglecting that relationship, God, then, then let us do as the children of Israel did. They confessed, they submitted and then there was fruit. They burned their idols and they served God. It wasn't just words. There was a change in their life. Bring that change, Lord Jesus. Ignite your people. Give us the victory as the Ammonites and the Amorites and all these other ites are all around us throughout the world looking to destroy and squash out the fruitfulness of God's word. But God, you give the victory. It's not us. You give the victory when we give ourselves to you. And you use us to do it. So God, give us the victory in Buell. Give us the victory in Filer and Castleford and in Twin Falls. Give us the victory in this land. That hearts and lives might be turned toward you. And may we, in this room, answer the call to be one of God's heroes. One of those who will say, I will do it. I will lead. I will go. Here I am. Send me. Lord, move in a mighty way among your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.